Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Well, it feels like we just got Elixir 1.15, but now we're talking about 1.16. RC0 was released at 2 a.m. at the time of this recording, <laughs> and it comes with some pretty cool stuff. We've got some compiler perf improvements, some code snippets and diagnostics, and some improved documentation, but you know, it wouldn't be the news unless we dug into some of that stuff. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the compiler performance improvements. So Jose Valim shared this on Twitter, and he says, if you have a project with 10,000 files and you changed one small file, Elixir would take three and a half seconds on his machine. And with the work in progress patch that he was showing off at the time, it should take 1.2 seconds. Just to be clear, that only applies if you have a lot of files. So it's not going to speed up a normal, small, medium-sized project. And, you know, my question, obviously, is that what kind of projects have that many files? <laughs> and honestly, he didn't explain that. Maybe he's been working with a client who has a situation like that. I don't know. But he did share a simple three-line IEX script that does a little loop and one to 10,000 times just does a three-line execution that writes a file to create an empty module that demonstrates the problem. <laughs> so you get 10,000 modules in your folder. But what's interesting is these are modules that are empty, right? It's not even like that they have code referencing other code in other modules and you're having to like work out a whole dependency graph. It's not about that at all. It's just about having that many files. Yeah. I have to imagine it's some file reading parallel tree find, I don't know, something like that. I imagine if somebody is like auto-generating code from like data, mm -hmm. eh, this, this is probably where it could help. That's pretty neat. Also in Elixir 116 and RC0 are improvements to code snippets in the diagnostics. And we talked about this in the previous news episode, but just to recap, it's an improved warning and error output in the console. There's an Elixir forum post with a bunch of you know, examples of this improvement. Here's how you can think about the improvement. It's showing code and using ASCII characters to kind of draw the squiggles and the, and the lines that are pointing to like the offending issue. For example, like this is where I expected the right square bracket to be, you know, like you got the opening one, you didn't give me the closed one. And this is where exactly where I was expecting it to be. So that's pretty nifty. Always down for great error messages. And so it looks like we're going get to get even better ones in 1.16. Yeah. And there was also a lot of changes to helping to improve the documentation. So it looks like quite a bit of work was done to unify the documentation. So now we have the tutorial in the docs. We've got the intro style docs helping people get started. It's all just sitting there inside of hex docs, the place that we all know and love and has all the hockeys we all know and love. Yeah, another cool thing that was in this documentation improvement is diagrams. In the show notes, you can find a link to the GenServer docs that include a diagram to help visualize a GenServer making multiple calls to clients and receiving responses. So it's like a little mermaid-style graph. Lower down in the GenServer docs, there's another swim lane graph that helps to explain the client-server API interactions of GenServers. So that's really nice just to see that, especially for libraries, right? I think having diagrams for libraries is super helpful. And I can even imagine a large project for a team where you have that core piece that like, this is the whole center heart of our app. 
having diagrams to help visualize that. So when you're onboarding people and they're needing to kind of find their way around, it's like, this is how this piece works. You know, it could be really helpful. I got to nerd out a little bit on that detail, the diagrams and the docs. We're using Mermaid. Uh, most of the developer world uses Mermaid now, I think, to like write in Markdown the diagram like source, and then it gets rendered by the Mermaid library. All right. I've dealt with this. Mermaid is not too friendly when it comes to like changing out the themes, <laughs> right? Because, you know, XDoc has like a light theme and a dark theme. And so if you're if you're weird and you <laughs> and you decide to change the theme, most sites that are rendering Mermaid don't update the mermaid theme, right? So if you were dark, the mermaid graphs will stay dark even after you change the theme to light. You have to do the full refresh, right? Usually to make that work. All right, I haven't looked at the source code, but it takes it takes work to, to re-render the mermaid graphs to get the new theme in there. Essentially, you have to, from my experience, you have to, you have to destroy all those graphs in the DOM and re-render them mm. just to change the theme. I don't remember there being like an update theme function like on the mermaid stuff. Anyway, all that to say is that Xdocs, this is nice and smooth. And yes, it will update even the mermaid theme. So that's a nice little detail. All right, well, moving on from my little nerd out session. Also new in 1.6 in the docs is that there's a new section about anti-patterns. There's lots of different anti-patterns. There's code-related anti-patterns. There's design-related anti-patterns. There's process-related anti-patterns. <laughs> and then uh, essentially any meta-programming is an anti-pattern. Just kidding. <laughs> code-related is, well, it's related to your code, particular language idioms and features, and then there's things above that. That's like how you organize your code, what role they play in the in the code base, modules and functions, and how to organize things. And then there's process related stuff, which is you know Erlang is is unique in that it does work in in, in processes. And so there's bad ways of organizing your code around processes and good ways. And then lastly, metaprogramming is just you just always ask yourself, is this the right thing? Am I doing the right thing here? <laughs> yes. I just summarized the whole the whole section there. I'm just kidding. There's actually a lot of good things in, in there about metaprogramming. Anyway, all that to say is that Elixir 1.16 now has a little section, just like cheat sheets, just like the getting started section, just like the mix and OCP section. There's another section now called anti-patterns. So give it a good read and go update all of your old janky broken code now. Get away from that anti-patterns. What I like about the anti-patterns is when you check them out in the docs, that is, they have like a problem where they're describing it. Then they give an example of what this looks like when it's not not the recommended or, or ideal way. And then they have a little section on refactoring. Like, how do I get away from this? How do I move? What's the alternative, the, the better path? And then they have the code examples and ex explanations there. So that's actually very helpful. Yeah, yeah. Problem, example, solution, example. Like you get to actually see code in here. It's not like just reading a sermon about how you did this poorly, you know? <laughs> it's pretty great. But seriously though, metaprogramming, like two of the sections are don't. <laughs> don't metaprogram. <laughs> don't generate huge amounts of code and don't do stuff that's pretty worthless where you don't actually need it for that. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. So you're right. Yeah, all three sections are about don't. But the the, the I I learned something in there. This just took took me a while to learn this, but uh yeah, metaprogramming, you can you can like stuff all of your code to inject in a in a meta function and a macro function, or the the solution is the pattern to not anti 
is to just put the least amount of code that is metaprogrammed and instead like have it call like a regular function or something mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So that was a very good principle to see. All right. Well, spent too much time on metaprogramming, but still the lesson is don't, don't metaprogram. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of not metaprogramming, they've got built-in cheat sheets now for the enum library, since this is one of the most used and one of the most powerful modules in the Elixir standard library. So there's this big old section. It's like cheat sheets and it has one cheat sheet, enum cheat sheet. So it's got good examples in there, how to use it. I know we've seen a lot of people coming up with this, you know, their own versions of an enum cheat sheet. And now we finally have an official one in, in the documentation. So that's cool. So there's a lot of cool stuff we talked about coming up in 1.16. Just as a reminder, we are on RC0. So you got to ask, well, what does the upgrade process look like? How dangerous is this going to be? Is a lot of breaking stuff. If you remember back to when Elixir 1.15 came out, it came out paired with OTP 26. And there were some more deeper changes in that OTP 26 that really impacted the VM boot process. And there were a lot of little gotchas. And so people were kind of having to roll out slowly and kind of test it out on their app and like, oh, I'm getting a failure at this time. And it wasn't the smoothest. Then the question is, is this one going to be good? Is this going to be easy? And yes, this should be a very straightforward upgrade. You can easily upgrade to it, try it out, and then you can give your feedback on the Elixir forum post that we have linked in the show notes. Fly.io. It's a great place to run Elixir apps with many global regions, a private network that makes it easy to cluster your app, and a powerful CLI. It's something you should really try out. Experience it for yourself at fly.io. All right. Well, that's it about the Elixir upgrade. Let's move on to another subject. We've got Lexical LS, one of the three LSPs out there for Elixir. Elixir LS 0.4 was released. And this was a pretty big one, it looks like. I'll highlight the release. It includes Document Hover for functions and modules. For those that are using Helix, the editor, it now supports the integration with Helix. So all 12 of you out there. There's also Hex integration. So if you're writing HTML templates, that's going to be really helpful. Massively improved auto-completion support, so that's great. And then lastly, as they say it, long-standing Unicode completion and editing bugs have been slain, like the way that they word that. <laughs> we talked to uh, Steve Cohen about Lexical LS, and he goes into a good section about Unicode and how that's, you know, that's weird in, in most language server handling. So anyway, good to see that they're still improving and getting good features out there. So next up, Flameon 0.6.0 is now available, which adds support for LiveView 0.20. So if you haven't tried Flameon yet, what it is, it's a little add-on to Live Dashboard, and it gives you access to all these cool flame graphs for code paths in your app. We'll drop a link in the show notes. At the very top of the GitHub repo, it shows a really awesome screenshot of exactly what you would expect if you're imagining what flame charts are, and it can be a really useful tool for debugging. And next up, Wojtek Mock's ElixirConf video about his REC library was released on YouTube. REC is a great library for making HTTP requests from Elixir. If you haven't checked it out already, you probably should, especially if you're making any kind of external requests like that. And his talk is a great way to get a look at the library and, you know, from the author. All right, next up, the OTP team has mentioned that they may build in JSON support into OTP. I don't have much on this other than a tweet. 
So take this as you will. Maybe we'll see it. Maybe we won't. Maybe it'll be in like five years. I don't know yet. But the quote is, there's some work going on to have JSON in OTP by version 27 or 28. And that this was apparently announced at Codebeam US, I think. And so we got a link to the tweet by Mihal Muscala. I trust him. I think that's happening. I'm, I'm looking for other evidence <laughs> to see. In any case, if that happens, that is going to be pretty exciting because Pretty much every project I, I have has the JSON library in it, which is an Elixir library. It would be pretty cool for other projects that maybe aren't using Phoenix to have just JSON parsing, you know, basic decode, encode included in the standard library. That's such a pervasive way of transferring information. So it seems very compelling to have that built into OTP. So pretty cool. Looking forward to that. We'll have more info as it comes out. I'm still waiting for Protobuf to make its way into the standard library. <laughs> man, if you work at Google, it's probably standard live there. But anywhere else, man, it's it's a big pain. <laughs> and next up, just wanted to share that we saw that another LLM was added to Bumblebee. And this one is called Zephyr. And it's the Zephyr 7B. So the hardest thing with all of these AI announcements is people are saying, hey, check out the new Zephyr 7B is available. It's like, what is that? What does that mean? Who knows anything about this? Like that's, it's like people are sharing something they're really excited about and they expect you to have the same context that they do. And you're like, I'm not, I'm not in that space. My head doesn't live there. Yeah. What does this mean, Mark? <laughs> so Zephyr is actually a series of language models that are trained to act as helpful assistants. Think ChatGPT, probably more like ChatGPT 3.5 than 4. Zephyr 7b Alpha is the first model in the series and is a fine-tuned version of Mistral 7b. So Mistral, we talked about last week, is an open-source Apache-licensed LLM. Zephyr is like a version of Mistral. That's where it gets like so confusing. Like the people are just throwing around these terms, just like expecting you to be following this stuff. So we're going to try and follow some of the ones that are most relevant to us in our space. So Zephyr is a version of Mistral that was trained on a mix of publicly available and synthetic data sets. And what's interesting is they said, we found if we removed some of the biases that it would actually give better answers and do a better job. But what that means, some of these biases are things like that it's not going to say things or generate text that is offensive or in some way, not what you want. Not to make light of it, but like, you know, the truth hurts sometimes, right? <laughs> <laughs> it may not be good for production use, but great for experimentation and something worth trying out. So I'm really excited to give that a shot. Torin Billups showed a simple code example on Twitter of what was needed to load up the serving. And then a, another little simple follow-up tweet of this is the prompt of how you would actually use a prompt to, and get a response. It's definitely on my list to try. I love it. Probably not suitable for production, but what are we going to do? going to put it in production. <laughs> we got alpha versions here. We got Mistral V0.1. Elixir Live View is still not 1.0. <laughs> You're talking to it. We're talking to a crowd here that uh, gets this model off of a place called Hugging Face. <laughs> All right. So next up, Live View Native just got support to run on the TVOS simulator into the Rust core. So it's Kind of cool that uh, LiveView Native is contributing to Rust. It looks like they had to make some changes to make this possible. And I guess that's just an example of why open source can be pretty cool. If you're trying to push something forward, you can go ahead and make it happen. 
Yeah, I remember from Brian Cartarella's keynote at ElixirConf, he talked about how it was able to run in all these different simulators, like the watch simulator and the phone simulator. He says, but we can't get it to work on the TV one. And that's because of this other issue with this Rust project. And so it sounds like they just got tired of waiting for them to go fix their stuff. And they said, you know, we'll just go fix it for you. And then upstreamed that into the Rust project to make it so, hey, now they can run the tvOS simulator with LiveView Native. So it's just exciting to see that they're continuing to push forward with this and can't wait to see uh, when it's actually in the hands of people and they're actually like really using it in anger. That'll be really fun to check out. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I always use things in anger. That's probably a me issue though. (laughs) All right, next up, we got Jason Steves who wrote a nice blog post about how Elixir and Phoenix can do it all. And I think it's pretty true. You know, there is a pretty classic table out there written by Sasha Yurik from the Elixir in Action book. Classic. If you haven't read it, you should go pick it up. I think the second edition is coming out soon-ish, if it's not already out. Gosh, I don't remember now. Anyway, and so this post is kind of an update to that table because a lot has changed with Elixir in the ecosystem since the years of that book releasing. For example... The table that we're talking about is like the HTTP server and an application A, it would be served by Nginx and the Fusion Passenger, you know, server. And but in server B, it is Erlang. And background jobs used to be managed by Cron and Bash Rips or Ruby or something. And in server B, it's still Erlang. And for long running processes, you might run that stuff in Go. And then server B, it's, you guessed it, Erlang. And so the the whole technical requirements that Erlang can fulfill for us, that table has just gotten bigger, I think. So this blog post just goes into each of those and gives you good examples of how Elixir and Phoenix are incredibly capable of doing all the things. You know, if you added more things to it, it's like a front-end JavaScript spa. You got React, JS in this side, and now you got Live View on the right side. You know, it's like there's just more that's possible. Mm-hmm. It is neat to to see places where Elixir and Phoenix are solving problems for us and providing solutions where we don't have to bring in lots of other external things that because you have the whole complexity situation, the more pieces you have that are moving and having their own release cycles and everything, it can just be a problem, a hassle. Jason also goes through and includes some hex packages from the community, things like Oban, as an easier on-ramp to say, I want to do those background jobs, things like that. Oh, correction for myself, Elixir in Action 3rd Edition. That's the one that's coming out soon. That's the one. Ah, nice. Yeah. Last up, if you've been interested in SpawnFest, it looks like the competition took place and it has completed. There's about 25 projects submitted and we will leave a link which contains links to all the submission repos. There's quite a few examples in there. Some of them are in Elixir, some in Erlang, some in Gleam. There's one in LFE and one in Livebook even. The judges will begin the evaluation and we'll keep you guys updated in the notes in the future. Just a couple of examples here. There's one called Arizona, which is a web framework for Erlang. There's one called Latch, which is a tool for viewing open telemetry data as it's coming in. There's one called Heimdall, which is a web application that lets you share sensitive data in a secure and easy way. There's XSyncThing, which is a pure Elixir implementation of an open source library called SyncThing, which is just a peer-to-peer syncing platform thingy-majigger. We'll just call it a thing. There's one called 
Mungo, which is a Mongo DB driver for Gleam. These are some serious tongue twisters, I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> and there's one called Kino Wasm. So this one is a smart cell that leverages WebAssembly to achieve multi-language support and Livebook. A lot of words there. I'll be interested in seeing that one for sure. Yep. SpawnFest is awesome just because there's so many creative submissions. And congrats to everyone who participated and was actually able to submit some code. I know there were about five more projects who had intended to do something, but then didn't actually submit in time for when the competition closed. Just based on the past, we've seen some of these projects that you kind of treat as like a spike, right? Just like a trying something out. And then some of them actually go on to be projects. Some of them actually end up getting merged into Livebook or other projects themselves. So it's worth covering. And we will certainly be coming back to it as we learn more. But unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.